0: Good morning. morning. There we go. My name's Keith. For those of you who don't know me, I am very thankful to get to speak to you today. Since it is Good Friday, I will be speaking on the atonement, and I'll be reading from Isaiah 53. So if you want to flip in your Bibles to Isaiah 53, surprise, we're actually going to start at the end of 52 and work into 53, because there's two verses for the pickup. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be lifted, he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which is not being told, them they see, and that which they have not heard, You may be seated. Before we begin, I would like to uh, open in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that we can meet together today as the church. You have blessed us in so many ways, and we are grateful. We particularly thank you that you sent your Son to die in our place today. As we dig in, I ask that you speak through me and that that the truth will be presented I ask that you work in our hearts today and give us a bigger understanding of who you are. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen. So, right off the bat, we see in this passage of Isaiah, there is a prophecy of the Messiah who has not yet come. The people of the Old Testament uh, would not have had a complete understanding of what was to happen until roughly 700 years later, but they could look forward to the promises given in faith. I'm gonna read again, uh, but I'm gonna. This time, I'm gonna start in chapter 53, and I'm gonna read from verses 1 through 4. I have to hop here. Who has believed that he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted by grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So right off the bat, based on his language, we can see Isaiah is writing this looking backwards in time after its fulfillment of Christ sort of like someone sharing the plot of a movie. We don't quite get the whole picture until we go see it ourselves. However, it does give us an understanding kind of like when you go see a trailer, but that's different. But of course, living now, after Christ, we can understand the prophecy uh, to its fuller extent. The people of the day were looking forward to this prophecy, but we look backwards with a much, much bigger understanding. So far, we can also see several things here. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We can see a question of who has understanding of the suffering Messiah being asked about. We see a Messiah who cares cares about our griefs and our sorrows. He's taking on something of ours. He was despised and rejected, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Despised, we esteemed him not, yet we esteem them stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. These verses don't show us a Messiah who is welcomed with open arms by any stretch of the imagination. This seems like a very humble position for a Savior to be in, all things considered. These verses also describe him as no majesty, or sorry, no form of majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Are we starting to see a bit of a picture? But, based on the people's rejection of Christ when he came, we could guess that the people of the day were reading this passage with two bricks for a pair of glasses, and after some squinting and straining, they were able to concur, oh, clearly the Messiah would be a much more suitable leader, ready to crush the adversaries of the Jews taking them out of the hands of their oppressors. They were blind to who Jesus was. Let's keep reading. In verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In verse 5, we see he was pierced for our transgressions. In John 19, we can read that when the soldiers found him dead on the cross, they pierced his side with a spear. Out came blood and water. To the Jews, the blood was considered precious, and it contained life. But this was significant in a few ways. A. It showed that Jesus was fully man. B. It was important evidence for his death. And C., it was also important to note that this is the fulfillment of the prophecy talked about in Isaiah 53. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. There is a debt that we all have. Something Christ did covered that. Something he did paid for that. Something he did in taking our place. We often hear God is loving and merciful, that he forgives. So why did he have to send his son in our place? Why couldn't he just forgive us? My brothers and sisters, I want to expand on this question that may arise from these verses with a story. Imagine for a second a man after a night of drinking, completely sloshed, unable to talk, barely able to stand, with thinking nothing of it, gets in his car and decides to drive home. Another car crossing the intersection was a father and son. They're coming home late from a hockey game. The drunk at the wheel, not stopping at his red light, plows into the side of the son in the other vehicle. The father watches as the son dies. The father can't do anything about it, and his son just dies there on the spot. The next day... The intoxicated man wakes up in the hospital. He's in bed, he's confused about what happened, and there's a police officer in the room. The officer goes to him and informs him, you killed a child yesterday. Anyone listening to this story would say that the drunk driver is guilty and deserves prison or some form of punishment. Now imagine the father of the son watching in court as a quote-unquote merciful judge, tells the drunk, I will forgive you. And we can pretend like none of this ever happened. All you need to do is just apologize to me, the judge. That will be sufficient for the debt, and I will let you go free. How would that fix the debt? What does that say about the law? Clearly, the law couldn't be that important to the judge. Is that a just judge? One who lets guilty criminals go? Not only is it not, but it goes against the very nature of God and who he is. God hates sin. He detests it. No sin, no not one will go unanswered. Proverbs 11 verse 21 says, Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. All of our sins are accounted for, if not paid for, by Christ Christ. Let me ask you something. If we stop and look at ourselves and our current condition, in regards to our sin, that is, are we mostly good or are we mostly evil? Is it that we just need some sins throughout the day forgiven? Kind of like a a fuel tank that just needs a bit of a, a top off? Dear friends, the human condition in our fallen state is corrupt. The word says in Romans 3, Verse 23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us. Every last one of us. Well, in Romans, if we look back a little bit more in chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, it says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. A couple more. In Isaiah 64, 6, the word compares our righteousness to filthy rags. In some translations, we'll call this polluted garments. Another one, Jeremiah 17, 9, says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And lastly, Ephesians 2, verse 1, it describes us as once dead in sin before coming to Christ. What does that sound like? Does that sound like I, Keith, am a pretty good person who occasionally breaks a couple rules, lets his eye wander for a minute and needs a little bit of forgiveness from time to time? Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says, and it describes us once as enslaved to sin. Think about that. Enslaved. But I'm a pretty good guy, right? I'm a better guy than most. At least I'm not like... Bob with his addiction? Or Susan with uh, her gossip? Does my prideful self-image of my goodness line up with what the word says about me? No. We are all good by our own standards, but the law shows us that our standards aren't God's. We so often like to compare ourselves to others and judge ourselves in a much more flattering light. We think our sin is small. Does dead in sin sound like someone who's a really good person? Does our deceitful heart seem like a place where we can find good motives? What about good motives most of the time? Are we not plagued with pride, lust, idolatry? Not loving our neighbor as ourselves? Thinking we know better? Than God, when we put our presuppositions ahead of His word, even when the world says our presuppositions are right? When we think, I will only serve a God like this, or one who does that, a God who believes what I believe. We make a false God with our own standards, and we put them on Him. We are making an idol. How often do we do these things? Let's keep reading. In verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent so he opened not his mouth the son was not un- was not sent unwilling to this fate he was not being given over while fighting tooth and nail kicking and screaming he went out of obedience to the father we can see in the garden of gethsemane jesus knowing what is to happen, pray this. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, as I will, but as you will. Christ went willingly to the slaughter. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? We see By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Jesus was wrongfully condemned. Isaiah here, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. In Luke 23, when Jesus is being crucified, we hear him say these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is fulfilling this prophecy that those who condemned him didn't understand what they were doing verse 9 and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth again we see more prophecy being made about the tomb he was buried in belonging to a rich man also showing in the verse he was killed as a wicked man even though he was morally perfect and innocent indeed verse 10 Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We see the divine purpose of God for Christ to be sent here, for his lost, as we saw back in verse 6. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What God did for a sheep was intentional. We were bought with a price. He didn't just go loosely to the cross just hoping some of us would choose him Then he could apply this to us. He died for us. Isaiah 5 verse 25 says when we're being told, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He didn't just die to leave the option out there like a Leave a penny, take a penny. His death was for the church, his sheep. His atonement produced definite results. What he intended to accomplish, he accomplished. Galatians 2, verse 20, gives us an example of that. It says, If you put your trust in Christ, this was for you. He died for you. Matthew 1, verse 21 says, She will bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. If anybody puts their faith in Christ, they can say, he died for me. If anybody does that, that's just beautiful. In verse 11, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. The result of Christ's suffering was not one of regret, but was one of satisfaction. He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He makes many proclaimed righteous, and those are the ones he bore the sins of, the righteous. So, Who are the righteous? Romans chapter 3 verse 22 says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness is counted to those who believe in Jesus, and he will bear their iniquities. In verse 12 finally, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We see the symbolism of a divided portion, a spoil. This is imagery of a victorious conqueror, sharing the victory and its products, its wealth, with its allies. It says he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He's identifying with them. He's taking on their title with his sacrifice. It's like taking the debt belonging to Keith, and he's attaching it to himself. We have a debt. And Isaiah is showing that this Messiah will take our sins upon himself. How could someone else pay for our sin? Wouldn't my death cover the cost when I die? Could I not die in someone else's place? No. So why not? Because, like everybody, we all deserve death. We are all descendants of Adam and share in the curse. Like the drunk driver from the story earlier, if another man who committed the same crime went before the judge and said, let me take the other drunk's place, the judge would laugh and say, you are being charged of the same crime you cannot serve on behalf of both of you. Our sins And its wages can only be shown to a very limited extent with this analogy. But we are born into this curse covenantally through Adam. But remember, Jesus was fully man, being of the seed of the woman, still a man, but not the son of Adam. He was fully man, he was fully God, and he was not some demigod like the pagan mythology that we've all heard. Jesus was tempted, the same as us, under the curse, but he did not share In the curse, he lived a perfect and blameless life. This made him the true and spotless Lamb, worthy to pay for our debts. Taking our place on that cross where he died, he succeeded on a tree where we had failed. But he didn't just die, though. He rose from the dead, conquering the grave. He didn't stay on that cross, he didn't stay in the tomb. Our Savior lives and all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is victorious. That's our Savior. He reigns at the right hand of the Father, and he lives. I'm going to close with a a bit of a summary here. So in summary, God is just and justifier. He is a just judge who will not let the evildoer pass, which coincidentally would place us all in that camp by virtue. And yet, he is justifier. Mercifully, he sent his son in human form into the world to live a perfect and blameless life. Being able to take the penalty that we deserve if we believe in him, for it is by grace through faith alone that we are saved. This is a free gift of God. There is nothing we can do to earn it, and there is certainly nothing we could do to ever deserve it. For any of you who don't know Christ I invite you to repent of your sins that's to turn away from that which is evil and put your trust in Christ Jesus. If you receive him and believe in his name you are considered a child of God. And for those of you who are in Christ I want to leave you with Paul's writings in Romans chapter 6 verses 1 to 11. If you want to flip there uh, and stand I'd like to read that to close here. That's Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Who, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and the access that we have to it. Thank you for your mercy that we can meet you as a church in this warm building. You have given us far more than we ever could deserve or ask for. Every day that we are still breathing and every sunrise on this earth is your mercy on us all. We ask that you would work in our hearts and continually shape and mold us to be imitators of Christ. I ask that everyone here would know you with a saving faith and have a bigger knowledge of who you are more and more every day. Please lead us away from temptation and keep us from evil. We also ask for your safety as we head home till we can meet again. We commit these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated.